Amen. So, two weeks ago, if you can remember that long, 2020, 2021 rather, is already proven to be quite eventful. If you can remember that long, I, I preached on this passage, and I found it uh, a beautiful text through which to explore the season of Epiphany, which we talked about as the manifestation of Jesus' glory. However, uh, much in my study did not make it into an already overstuffed message. And so today I would like to return to our passage and explore further around a particular applicational theme. So two weeks ago, we spent most of our time laboring to prove that the miracle at Cana of Galilee the turning of water into wine, was, what we said, an enacted parable. That is, in some way, the water transformed into wine was a sign of the cross and the empty tomb. You remember Jesus' enigmatic response to his mother, my hour has not yet come. So our Lord's death and resurrection, we said, is symbolized in the good wine that he Created. John chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, he called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, he then serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus brings the good wine. Right? What an image. Our Lord does not strap us into a high chair and force feed us peas, nor does he make us drink down the dregs of the medicine cup, but instead, he sets a table and he serves us wine aged in heaven. That is, like wine, the promises of the gospel bring joy and gladness and rejoicing into our lives. As we are told, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And so from this, we drew one line One primary line of application. As followers of this Jesus, the bringer of good wine, our lives should be characterized by his joy and by his gladness. Because the good wine is for us, after all. It's not to be stored away in a cellar. It's not to be displayed in a cabinet. But it's to be drunk and enjoyed. What does the Holy Scripture say? Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God has been poured in, uh, poured in within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so based on, the, on that line of application, I left you with one observation. It's one thing to know that the Lord is good, but it's another thing entirely to experience that the Lord is good. In other words, It's nice to know the intricacies that make for a good wine, a balance of tannin and sweetness, the proper alcohol content, and etc. But it's far better to sit around the table and enjoy that wine with your loved ones. Is the Lord's goodness merely a doctrine confined to the pages of Scripture, or is it a reality to be experienced in our day-to-day lives? And so the heart behind Uh, our message two weeks ago was simply this, to encourage and to spur you along to taste and see that the Lord is good. That is, that you, in your own personal relationship 
with the Lord, would not settle for mere second-hand knowledge, but that you would enjoy the good wine that Jesus brings for yourself, that you would know that and that you would experience it in your own life. Or, as St. Paul puts it, that you may know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. In short, that you would delight in the Lord. That's what we were after. So, this morning, I'd like to take a step back and consider this theme, delighting in the Lord, loving the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, um, in a more general sense. I left feeling after the message that there was more to be said, that there was good meat left on the bone still. Uh, So I've expanded upon the theme, and I'll share that with you now. And I'd like to begin by considering ourselves, by, by considering something about us first and foremost. Before anything else, human beings are lovers. That is, our most fundamental orientation to the world is that of love. It's not primarily our mind that drives us, nor even our beliefs, but our desires and our passions. Love is the primal thing. Allow me to explain. You guys are familiar with the passage, Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. A man says to Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, rightly, as it pertains to the two great commandments, the majority of our focus is on the objective. We are to love God, first and foremost, supremely, with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, with all our soul, and we are to love our neighbor as ourself. But what we often miss is what is presupposed in the two great commandments, that love, before anything else, is central to our identity. We are not commanded to know or to believe the Lord, but rather to love Him. And likewise, we're not commanded to appreciate or to understand our neighbor, but to love Him. If our greatest need were intellectual or belief-based, then the two greatest commandments would reflect that. But instead, their preoccupation is love. The aim of God's decree is not simply to deposit new ideas into our minds or to alter our convictions, but ultimately, it's after our love that our desires would be cut loose from lesser and even sinful objects to be fixed upon God and those made in His image. The commandment is after our love. Take The Apostle Peter is an example of this. The night Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied him three times. And when it came time for Jesus to restore Peter, what did he ask him? Not, do you believe me? Not, do you know me? But, Simon, 
son of John, do you love me? At its root, Peter's failure, his denial of Christ, did not stem from doctrinal ignorance or merely cowardice, but a deficiency in love. The Lord's penetrating question to Peter was designed to get to the heart of the matter. What he loved most. Do you love me, Peter? And indeed for all disciples, you and I included, what we love is the most important matter. What we love is the most important matter. Another passage you're all familiar with, Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. The Lord says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. The essence of discipleship is not one's thoughts and attitudes, though those are important, but one's loves. To be worthy of Jesus, one must have no other loves before him. Not father or mother, nor son or daughter, indeed, nor anything else. A disciple must love Jesus above everything. And once again, what this points to is the simple fact that love is the center of a person's identity. To put it simply, you are what you love. You're not what you think. You're not what you think you think or think you believe. You are what you love. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And so here's the point we've been building to. Here's what the idea I want to get across. Love, not reason or belief, is the animating force in a person's life. We like to think that we navigate our way through the world based on our best reason and judgment or according to our most deeply held beliefs, but that is simply not true. The engine and compass of our lives is the heart. Our desires and our wants. That's what drives us. That's what moves us. That's what propels us in the world. And a perfect, albeit tragic, example of this is a husband who cheats on his wife. He meets another woman in the office and he begins to develop feelings for her. Quickly, those feelings grow into genuine affection. And that genuine affection matures into a sincere love. Up to that point, everything has been based in the office. Merely conversation and the occasional lunch together. But his desire is propelling him further. To get away for the weekend. To have her over when his wife is gone and etc. But he's torn. He was raised in a Christian home. And so he knows better. He was raised in a Christian home and so he knows this is wrong. And he even believes it's wrong. But there's a greater force that overrides his best impulses. His desire for this woman has become so strong and in his mind so sincere 
that he ends up justifying his actions, going against all that he knows and going against all that he believes. Now, what's the point of this cautionary tale? <laughs> Hi, Graceland. <laughs> so what's the point of this cautionary tale? It's the centrality of love over reason and belief in a person's actions and decisions. He knew better. He even believed what he was doing was wrong. But the decisive thing was not what he knew or what he believed, but what he wanted. He wanted the woman, and therefore that's what he went for. To state the matter again, you are what you love. Psychologist Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, he developed a very helpful um, analogy for the relationship between reason, belief, and love in the human person. He compares our reason and belief to a rider atop a massive elephant. And the elephant, he says, is our loves, our desires and wants. So let me read to you what he says. Perched atop the elephant, the rider holds the reins and seems to be the leader. But the rider's control is precarious because the rider is so small relative to the elephant. Anytime the six-ton elephant and the rider disagree about which direction to go, the rider is going to lose. He's completely overmatched. And so it is between a person's reason and convictions in relation to their desires and wants. Our moral knowledge and our belief even are quickly overpowered when they come up against what our heart wants. When those two aspects of the person collide, we know what wins. The mind is a powerful thing, but it's nothing in comparison to the power of the heart. And so one finds themselves continually drawn to such and such a sin because their desire for it remains. Now transpose this into the register of your own particularly besetting sin. You know and believe that sexual relations outside marriage are wrong, that drunkenness is wrong, that gossip is wrong, yet, for all your conviction and sincerity, you still routinely return to your sin. You're overcome by it. Now why? Why, why do we fall into the sin that we, one, know is wrong, that we believe is wrong? Why do we keep going back there? The answer is because you are what you love. You may, your moral knowledge and your beliefs may have been transformed. You may believe Jesus is Lord. You may know this is the right thing to do, but your love has not been transformed. So the central matter of discipleship then is a reordering of our loves. That is, to use the language of John 2, we must wean ourselves off the poor wine of the world and cultivate a taste for the good wine that Jesus offers us. Or to put it another way, to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to learn to love the right things. You need to learn to love the right things. The Lord more than ourselves, virtue more than vice, wholeness more than destruction. But here's the trouble in all this when it comes to our loves. It's sin. The consequences of sin upon what we love, our affections, is particularly 
catastrophic. Sin means alienation from God. And alienation from God means the detachment of our loves from their proper object. In other words, sin has caused our loves and desires to become disordered. We attach ourselves to wrong things. We find satisfaction and fulfillment not from God, but from wicked things. Determined by sin, the pleasures of this world are far more desirable than truth and peace and righteousness. We are what we love, and we love all the wrong things. I'll never forget the day this dawned on me. I was on a road trip with a good friend, and we were passing through the stark deserts of Arizona. And a song, Revelry, by Kings of Leon came on. And as the title indicates, it voices the regrets of a self-destructive man. And I want to read you a little bit of it. It says, it opens, What a night for a dance, you know I'm a dancing machine. With the fire in my bones, the sweet taste of kerosene. He says this, I get lost in the night, so high I don't want to come down, to face the loss of the good thing that I had found. So, of course, he's going to uh, the, the, the nightlife, the party, whatever it is. He gets so high he doesn't want to come down because he's lost something. He says, in the dark of the night, I can hear you calling my name with the hardest of hearts. I still feel full of pain. So I drink and I smoke and I ask if you're ever around, even though it was me who drove us right into the ground. And then he says this, see, the time we shared, it was precious to me, but all the while... I was dreaming of revelry. And when we heard those words, my friend turned toward me. I'll never forget this. He looked me in the eyes and said, that's how I feel with the Lord. The song's about a man and his lost girlfriend. He says, that's how I feel with the Lord. The time we shared it was precious to me, but all the while I was dreaming of revelry. And I wonder if he's not the only one who feels that way. I'd be lying if I told you I had never had longings for the old life. And we often find ourselves there, committed to the Lord intellectually, believing in Him even, but with our heart, that most fundamental part of us, wanting something else. We find ourselves in that position. And so you see, until our loves are transformed, our discipleship will feel like the experience of that song, the time we shared was precious to me, but all the while I was dreaming of revelry. I was thinking about something else. I wanted something else. The right beliefs and the proper convictions, though they are of indispensable importance, can only take you so far. They will continually gas themselves out, pushing against loves that are moving in the opposite direction. And I'm sure most of you have experienced this, at least from time to time. The Christian life is drudgery and hard labor when your heart isn't in it. When you don't want the Lord, when that isn't what's propelling you. One can only swim upstream for so long. So therefore, to go back to the metaphor of taste, we might say that what's needed, what's needed is a cultivation of a new taste. I can still remember the first time that I had a, a sip of coffee. It was disgusting. To my overly picky, overly sweet-toothed palate, the bitter taste of poorly made coffee 
by a couple seventh graders in a hotel room was absolutely revolting. I hated it. So, but as I matured, I began to develop a taste for coffee. I started with the sugariest coffee drink I could find and slowly progressed toward more pure forms of coffee drinking. And now the only cup of coffee that I drink is black. That's the way I like it. So whereas before I hated bitter tastes and loved sweet tastes, now I love bitter tastes and generally don't care for sweet tastes. I've been reborn. The project of discipleship is something similar. It's a matter of cultivating a new taste, weaning ourselves off the poor boxed wines of the old world and learning to delight, learning to take love in the fine, good wine that Jesus offers us. I believe this is what St. Paul means when he tells the Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. He says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. What they once delighted in, the Romans, the sinful pleasures of the world, they are now to abhor, literally to detest and to hate and to to despise these things. And And what they once abhorred, namely the things of the Lord, they are now to cling to. Abhor, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And so presupposed in Paul's words is a massive tectonic shift in their loves. Their appetite for sin has been displaced by an appetite for the Lord's presence. A new taste has been given to them. The Romans, however, as Paul wrote to them, were merely beginning their journey. The culmination of the process, the complete reorientation of one's loves is testified to in the Psalms. Let me read you a few of these passages, and I just want you to really stand in awe of these words. Psalm 42, verse 1, it says, As a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. He says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Again, Psalm 84, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. Captured in these words is the experience of someone who's learned the surpassing goodness and beauty of the Lord in comparison to all other things. No longer are they contented with bodily pleasure or earthly satisfaction or human accomplishment. Those things have long turned bland and gray in the vividness and the delightfulness of the Father of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, I think the high point of this satisfaction in the Lord is found on the lips of King David. He says something that's hardly comprehensible. Psalm 63.3, Your loving kindness is better than life. It's not the best thing in life. It's better than life itself. So I think we should be careful 
to say that we know the fullness of what these words describe. What it means to have your heart yearn for the Lord. To truly say, your loving kindness is better than every other thing. Better than life itself. In fact, against our experience of dutiful church going and saying our prayers, this stands out as something astonishingly robust, virile, and spontaneous. We might know something of a gratitude toward God and a respect toward God, but this seems to be of a different order, something else entirely, something that seems hardly attainable. In truth, it's not. But I want us to feel the distance between King David's words and our experience, even at its best. That is, I want us to read those words. My heart yearns for you. Your loving kindness is better than life itself. And feel a bit of innocent jealousy and impatient longing after a similar desire for the Lord. Because if our loves are to be transformed... If we're to love the right thing, the Lord himself, that is where it starts. And so now as we turn toward the straightforward application part of this passage, I want to leave you with three things. If we want to have our desires reordered toward the Lord, the first thing we need to do is practice the absence of God. Not the presence of God, the absence of God. Let me explain. Presupposed in all those great longing passages in the Psalms that we just read, is that the person who wrote them woke up to a greater joy. There was something more that they found. Somewhere along the line, be it in one agonizing moment or in one small disappointment after another, they had become aware of a deeper longing that could not be satisfied. Maybe they were like Asaph, Psalm 73, who lusted after the luxuries and comforts of the rich only to find that they were less than nothing in the end. Whatever the case, the bottom line is that at some point they became disillusioned with the standard things of life. They became disillusioned with the standard things of life. Their old joys became like faded flowers and broken toys. It didn't satisfy any longer. And once that happened, they went looking. Maybe they searched the scriptures and read of Moses' relationship with the Lord, how God spoke to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Maybe they read that and became jealous. In comparison to Moses' nearness to God, their sporadic devotion seemed like a paltry thing indeed. And so what I'm trying to say is this. The first step to hunger and thirst after the Lord is to become aware of our own malnutrition and dehydration. Hence the statement, we need to practice the absence of God. And by that I mean we must become aware of our unawareness. We must become keenly sensitive to our insensitivity. At the very end of his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says this, We need to become increasingly aware of our unawareness till we feel like men who should stand beside a waterfall and hear no noise, or like a man in a story who looks in the mirror and finds no face there, 
or a man in a dream who stretches out his hands to visible objects but gets no sensation of touch. To know that one is dreaming is no longer to be perfectly asleep. And when it comes to what we're talking about, practicing the absence of God, I'm not sure it could be said any better. The object, what we're trying to get at is to realize that there is something more. There's a greater joy out there. Are we not at times like these men standing behind, beside the great goodness of the Lord, but hearing and feeling and sensing nothing? Looking and not finding, groping and not having. And so if you are dreaming your way through the world, satisfied with lesser things, the first thing to do is realize you're in a dream. There's a greater reality that awaits. The second thing for us to understand is that a love for God is a gift. A proper love for God is a gift. It's important that we remember God isn't accessible to us as other things are. That is, He cannot be found by human investigation and inquiry. Rather, if we are to find God, He must make Himself known. You did not choose me, but I chose you. The initiative and the impetus lies with Him not us, on the divine side of things and not the human side. Or to put it another way, a love for God is not natural to human desire. That's not the first thing that just comes to us normally. Because of sin, what is natural is just the opposite. Our hearts are naturally set on anything but the Lord. And Him we perceive as our enemy. It's the exact opposite. Thus, whereas one might be able to cultivate a new taste through diligence and openness, one can never cultivate a love for God through their own efforts and measures. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. As we are apart from the Lord, there's just never going to be any true desire for God. The flesh is hostile toward God. Therefore, If we are to see the Lord and then come to love Him as we ought, we must seek it from His hand. It's a gift. Consider the psalmist's words, Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. He says, Lord, you open my eyes. Of course, his words are addressed to God. If our eyes are to be opened... God must open them. Right? If you're finding yourself in a place where it's just you're just going through the motions, you believe, you know, but your heart isn't in it. If you were to have it, then God must give you that gift. God must open your eyes. It is the Holy Spirit's work to reveal the surpassing beauty and worth of Jesus, not yours. Only God can reveal God. Only God can make us love God. Therefore, once you've become aware that you're in a dream, the next step to do is ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and to wake you up. And truly, I can't think of a more important thing in this message is just simply to say, it comes from the Lord, therefore seek it from the Lord's hand. Ask the Lord. Seek to have your love reawakened or awakened for the first time. And lastly, the third thing for us to do is to utilize the ordinary means of grace. 
it's not given to most of us to have a Damascus road, a Damascus road experience. Most likely, the Lord Jesus Christ will not reveal himself to us as he did to Saul of Tarsus in dazzling brightness. Rather, the Lord makes himself known to us in much more ordinary and mundane ways, what we are calling the ordinary means of grace. And these ordinary means of grace are what the Lord has left and instituted in his church. The reading and the preaching of his word, the communion of the saints, the Lord's Supper, and etc. These are certainly less glamorous and exciting than a direct vision of God as St. Paul had, but they are nonetheless as useful. The God who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit does make himself available to us in them. So if we are to rejoice in God, to delight in God, it's not going to be apart from these means, hearing the word preached, reading the word on your own, celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's not something you have to go out to the desert to find, but it's something you find in the things that the Lord has given to you. If we are come to know and delight in Him, it won't be apart from these things, but through them. So, the good wine can be drunk from the pages of Scripture, in fellowship with one another, in celebrating the Lord's Supper. Therefore, the simple encouragement here, the simple exhortation is to seek the Lord where He may be found. Realize you're in a dream. Ask the Lord to open your eyes, to wake you up, and then to attend to the things that He's instituted. So, I think it's only right that we end with the the Lord's words through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly 